So tonight the topic is uncertainty. Which doesn't mean that I don't know what I'm going to talk about. Un un <laughs> uncertainty. Uncertainty. That which is not certain. Yeah. <clears throat> um, and this is a little different for me. I usually don't. Um, I usually don't have any structure. I just start talking, and then whatever happens. So, but I made some notes. Can someone request? Oh. Yes. Let's do a request. Good heavens. Getting ahead of myself here. This is the nature of uncertainty. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Buddhang namang sanghang namasami So topic about which we've heard much before, anicca, sabe sankara anicca. This phrase occurs in more than one place in the suttas. Uh, it means all conditioned things are impermanent. That's one of the translations. And you may know that Ajahn Chah, the founder of our lineage that we're practicing here, the uh, direct, direct teacher of Ajahn Viridhamo. Um, he liked to use the word, uh, the, the Thai phrase, my nay, which means not sure. And so a, a pretty good English approximation of that is uncertain. When I was training at uh, Abhayagiri, the the monks there were hearing about this so much from Ajahn Pasano. So, uh, you know, you, you'd ask somebody a, a question, you know, are we, are we having oatmeal this morning? And the question, the answer would always be uncertain. <laughs> Even if we were pretty sure, you never really, you never really know. So uncertainty is uh, a recurring theme in the, not only the suttas and the teachings of Ajahn Chah, but uh, all the instruction I've had in my own practice. And uncertainty is the word I prefer for this term anicca, because anicca gets translated as impermanence. And I, I find that's a little narrow. So anicca has, you could say, more than one mode of, of the way that we experience or can experience it. And the most accessible one 
is this mode of uh, temporal coming and going. Like sometimes a phenomenon here is here with us, and sometimes it's not. So uh, we notice things like pain arises and passes away. Um, uh, our desire for a particular food when we're eating arises, and then it gets satisfied and it passes away. Um, uh, plants in our gardens arise and they persist for a while and they pass away. Uh, physical phenomenon does this, mental phenomenon does this, all this phenomenon that we're connected with in our existence has this kind of quality of not staying the same, being non-static. But there are some things you can look at, like uh, the cinder block wall behind you. Um, okay, well, it's it's been here for quite some time, and there's a tree out front that's been here since the 1800s. Um, okay, maybe they're maybe they're t temporally impermanent, but for this from the perspective of our own lives, which are pretty impermanent, they seem pretty solid, pretty reliable. They 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 last longer than we do. So to to think of them as, as impermanent might be technically true, but in terms of uh, our experience of them or our, our thoughts about them, they seem quite permanent, actually. So we even have this notion of things being permanent, permanent marker, which uh, you know, may not really be that permanent, but the idea of, of permanence is there because we keep having experiences of things which seem pretty permanent. The North Star, the earth beneath our feet. The, there's lots of things that seem to have a kind of quality of not being that temporally, not, not noticeably uh, ephemeral. And so they, that's um, a mode of, of a Nietzsche, which doesn't really cover all the terrain. So other modes of a Nietzsche, which I think are more uh, are, are quite relevant and quite worthwhile to reflect upon, is that this aspect of experience uh, is happening, or, or all of our experiences are happening inside the theater of our, of our attention, as it were. So if, I'm, uh, if I say a word that, that you maybe have, haven't heard before, uh, um, I can't think of any words you haven't heard before, but um, uh, uh, maybe an unusual word like mandible right? or mandrel. There's another good one, mandrel. It's part of a, t a certain kind of a tool. Um, the mind, it's, it's not in the mind before it arises. The word gets said or I say something or some experience happens and uh, something arises in the mind. So I'll say a word, and an image will come into your mind. I'll say, sofa. And now everybody has a little piece of furniture in their head. And now that I've got you thinking about furniture, if I start another word, like reek, reek, sounds like I'm going to say recliner, but I was actually going to say recreation. Right? So, so your, your, your mind actually is good at predicting what's relevant, what's likely to arise in the future based on what's just arisen. So we start talking about furniture. Um, uh, things, the word like seat has a different meaning than if we're 
talking about uh, installing gaskets in a in a in an engine. So the the context, the mental context of everything that we experience, uh, includes our mood, the things that have just happened, uh, the um, the people that we're with, the social situation, everything that's in our environment, everything that's conditioned us from the past, is bearing on the way that we experience the arisings and passings in the mind of the present moment. So you can imagine that if, for example, you'd never encountered a particular word before that you just heard, uh, someone says a word in a foreign language that's not familiar to you, but it seems really important and relevant, then the way it affects your attention is much different than if it's an old, familiar word that you've heard many times before. So even though it's exactly the same phenomena in terms of sense contact, uh, like even that phrase, my nay, right? if you've never heard it before, uh, it's, it's a different experience than if you've heard it hundreds and hundreds of times. My nay, my nay, uncertain. So this is, a, um, you could say, an aspect of anicca, which has to do with the mentality that's necessary for any experience. In order for there to be experience, there has to be these mental factors that, which are there. So attention, intention, um, perception. Uh, uh, there's a great story that uh, Bhante Nyanananda uses. He, uh, um, teacher in Sri Lanka. He talks about um, a man whose job it is is to collect a, a, a heap of trash. And so he's got a, a barrel or a basket or something. He's going to collect this heap of trash and carry, get rid of it. And as he approaches the heap of trash, at first all he perceives is this you know, variegated junk, garbage, stuff that people don't want. It all needs to get out. Um, but then he notices there's a jewel kind of perched on the top of this heap of, heap of trash. And the jewel was a heap that was part of the trash before, but now that his attention is pointing at it and his perception has recognized its contours and its color and its sharpness, um, his mind has created this manifestation of jewel in his mind. Other classic ones on, uh, that you'll hear about, or, uh, we've probably used before, is the perception of, say, um, um, a wiggly looking shape on the path as a snake when it turns out to be really a rope when you get closer. So what we experience in the mind is dependent on our perception. It's dependent on our attention. It's, it's dependent on um, our sense bases. So if it's, if it's dark, uh, if the lights are all out, we can't perceive visual forms or if our eyes are closed. So the, the, our sense bases have to be available. We have to be paying attention and we have to, our, our perception has to be active. We have to notice things, catch the edges of things, and in effect, build the object in our mind. All experiences are like this. So something like cinder block wall or earth beneath your feet can only be experienced with these mental factors. And this is part of what makes things uncertain because if the mental factors aren't there, the experience isn't there. And with no experience, in effect, that that thing doesn't really exist. It only exists when you're paying attention to it, for you, for all practical purposes. So this is um, another mode of anicca. 
It only exists, exists really when uh, anything, sabe sankara, all conditioned things, only exist when the conditions are right for them to exist. And for us, most of the conditions are mental, uh, mental requirements. Um, and this, this is more important than it might seem at first. We think that the world persists um, whether we're paying attention to it or not. And you know, for practical, conventional reason, purposes, that's perfectly okay. That's, that's a perfectly good way of looking at things. Nothing wrong with that. But when it comes to Dhamma practice, the Buddha wants us to notice this really carefully, that we, we are uh, utterly dependent. Everything that we experience is utterly dependent on these mental factors. Uh, it's, it, it is uh, dependently arisen. Objects and experiences are dependently arisen. They are not independent. So it might seem as though this bell here is independent of whether we're paying attention to it or not, but we can't actually experience it without those mental factors. And so this, uh, like this utter dependence is uh, very, very relevant because it turns out that everything you care about, all the things that seem the most important to you, everything which causes your, you to have suffering is of this nature. It's utterly dependent on mental factors. It's utterly dependent on paying attention. It's utterly dependent on contact and the sense basis. And because of its dependence, it's not, um, it doesn't really have a standalone existence. Uh, it doesn't. It doesn't exist independently, and this is something that's kind of hard to get into our heads without paying uh, paying attention to it over and over and over again. So that's part of what we do in our practice: is we attend to this aspect, this dependent aspect of all experience, and we start by just watching our breath and watching our feet, uh, watching the, ex the experiences rise and pass away. And simply noticing that they don't, uh, that they're not permanent, okay? So they're, they're, they have this temporal, ephemeral quality to them. So um, if you're going through a door, the experience of the doorknob is a temporary experience. So you, you reach out, you touch the doorknob, it's cold, it's hard, uh, you turn it, there's some resistance, you open the door, because you're, you're really paying attention to the present moment and noticing each individual nuance of your movements as you're doing this, um, all those experiences of encountering the doorknob and opening the door arise and pass away. And then, when you, of course, when you go through the door, the doorknob's gone for you. Right? <coughs> and you're, you're paying attention to your feet or the carpet or the window or the sights and sounds, whatever else is arising. That's, that's your reality at that point. So the dependence of the, this requirement for your mind to be involved in all the experiences is something that we learn about through this careful attention to what's happening in the present moment. And at first it might not be very striking, but it slowly, slowly becomes more prominent. Then you start to see for yourself how all conditioned things well, A, they're conditioned, right? They, they, they arise due to causes and conditions. 
and they can't sustain themselves. So even something as permanent and as real as a, as a cinder block wall, all you have to do really is close your eyes and it vanishes. Uh, or all you have to do is direct your attention at something else and it's no longer your experience. So the experience of things is, is what's being pointed out here in terms of anicca, not their ontological existence independent of our minds, but their existence dependent on our mind, experientially. We only experience things uh, in, in our minds. We don't get to experience them other than that. So we imagine that they have an independent existence. And as I said, it's, it's okay for conventional purposes. But what we want to do is really carefully inspect how it is that, that things come to be <clears throat> in our experience. So by just paying attention to the fact that they're arising and passing away, it starts to dawn on us, slowly, slowly over time, how critical all of our experiences are on what we're doing with our minds at any given moment. So when we're paying attention to something, we experience it, and when we stop paying attention to it, it vanishes. Uh, at first, that seems very unremarkable. But as we pay careful, careful attention to this, the, there's a radical implication buried in the truth of impermanence. So when you notice that, for example, doorknobs arise and pass away, and footsteps arise and pass away, and etc., your mind starts to see the general applicability of this truth. It's, general, it's actually generalizable to everything in your life. So the experience of your loved ones arise and pa pass away. The experience of your reputation, your social credit, your social standing, your friends, how other people see you, um, uh, wealth and poverty, uh, pleasure and pain, uh, notoriety and obscurity, all the eight worldly winds, as the Buddha calls them, the things that push us around, are constantly arising and passing away. They don't have a static, independent existence other than whether or not we're paying attention to them, whether we're recognizing them, whether we're perceiving them. And at the heart of all this is this person that we take ourselves to be, who's the subject of all this arising and passing away. So we're getting blown around by these worldly winds, and even the that which is being blown around is experiential. And that which is experiential is conditioned, and that which is conditioned doesn't have a standalone independent existence. So this sounds like a chain of rational reasoning. And what our, what our practice does is it shows us shows this truth to us in real time in our direct experience. So that instead of being maybe plausible sounding or philosophical sounding, it's experiential. It's directly visible here and now as the truth of the way things really are. Things really are conditions. Things really are uncertain. But our minds are really conditioned to see things as certain. <laughs> to sort of see things as static, to see things as real because we have a lot of experience with that. And there's a, you could say, a conventional or practical uh, utility 
a utilitarian value in having the perception that things are standalone, independently existing, and uh, not necessarily particularly you know, dependent to, dependently arisen. The problem is, is when we see things as static and real and uh, independent, we include ourselves in that. We experience ourselves as being solid and real and independent, uh, separate from the rest of the universe. And then there's this subjectivity that goes along with that. And we, we miss the, uh, <clears throat> the possible freedom that comes from not having that stance. So the way it, you can look at it is something like this. When your mind starts to see experientially in direct experience through just paying attention to the rising and passing away of phenomena, with your meditative mind, as concentration gets better, as the mind becomes more gathered on the theme, it starts to occur to you that, yes, it's actually true. There aren't any experiences that arise in an independent way. They're all dependent on attention. They're dependent on contact. Um, and therefore, it's true that my views and opinions are all cult are all grounded in the perception uh, of something other than that. So everything that you believe is somehow, uh, you could say, wrong, uh, rooted wrongly. Right? Everything that we believe about the world in terms of things are real and true and reliable and independent, um, um, whether we like it or not, really does actually count on this, uh, these factors that we are calling impermanence. So whether or not we're paying attention, um, that our attitudes, our beliefs, uh, everything that comes into the moment of experience is a mental uh, factor. And because our mental factors aren't uh, always happening exactly the same way, we can experience the same event or the same, call it the same uh, experience over and over again as though it's completely different. So something that we love today, we can dislike tomorrow because of our mental factors. The mind is constantly assembling this world. Our internal world is being assembled out of these contexts that we have. And it, the world that we experience in our minds it seems to be populated by these durable entities. Uh, and one of the most uh, a category of, of entities which are particularly problematic, or potentially so, are, you could say, our views and opinions about things. So, for example, uh, say that you have a particular view about something that's topical and controversial, like a particular political stance. Uh, I don't know. Global warming, that's a good one. Right? So, so um, maybe you have a particular view about that, and your view and opinion seems you know, very, very uh, well-reasoned, uh, grounded in facts, um, uh, solid, true, and reliable. And whenever you look at the news or whenever you look at the, the, the world, it seems like that's, that view is being confirmed, that, it, that you're, it's, it's still true. And there are, you can find people in the world who experience exactly the opposite, 
right? They had the, the diametrically opposed opinion about what uh, what facts are relevant and what facts are worthy of being ignored, and they have a directly uh, diametrically opposed opinion about uh, what's really going on here. So we we don't have some sort of um, uh, external higher authority that can validate or de invalidate one or another of us. It's just a this is the nature of political struggle. People take two sides of a of a two opinions about a particular issue. Um, the existence of the issue itself is something that's mentally created, and then all our mental uh, opinions about it are coming from our own uh, background, experience, education, understanding. Uh, our friends, our family, the news sources that we pay attention to. It's all feeding, funneling into this stance that we have. And the people on the opposite side of the, of the thing are standing on their collection of those things, which are mostly mental, all conditioned. So you can't, um, uh, but you can't escape the fact that you have opinions and views about things, right? This is just a natural part of being uh, alive and engaged in the world is that you're going to come to conclusions. It's a natural thing that the mind does. The problem arises when we take our, our opinions and our conclusions about the world to be somehow absolutely true, incontrovertible, because it's kind of not really the case. Right? If it were absolutely true, then it would be easy for everyone to arrive at the same truth. But because things are kind of ambiguous, because, because things are uncertain, because all experiences are filtered through these mental um, uh, factors. People arrive at completely different uh, uh, opinions about things. Uh, if, it, if there were certainty, then presumably uh, everybody of good faith and, and reasonable faculties would inevitably arrive at the same conclusion. But for the most part, the things that are controversial aren't, aren't certain. So we're stuck with our views and opinions and one of the things that practice is really great for is helping to loosen our grip on our views and opinions. So if we think something is really true, we think it's really important, and we want to convince other people that it's true as well, then if they don't, if they disagree with us, then there's, there's anguish, there's suffering, there's despair, there's hatred, there's all kinds of negative stuff that can come up. And when we understand deeply that all views and opinions arise due to causes and conditions, including mine, then we can relax about views and opinions. We don't have to take them so seriously. It's not such a big deal if someone disagrees with us because they just have a view and, are, and an opinion, <coughs> just like we do. For every view and opinion that you have about any topic, you can find people who will agree with you. And you can find people who will disagree with you. Who is right? Well, it always seems like you're right. But of course, the people who are on the other side of the opinion, it always seems to them like they're right. That's necessarily the case. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's also the case that most people are acting in good faith. That they believe what they believe based on what seems true to them. So the problems arise when, we, when people grasp at their views and opinions. When they grasp at them and they hold them rigidly, then anybody who opposes them or c considers things differently seems like somehow the enemy. Uh, like, like not so much that they're opposed to my view, but that they're somehow they're opposed to me. 
my welfare. Uh, uh, they're opposed to, to truth. And this, um, this seems exactly the same way to them. Right? Like, so if you're, if you're pro this and they're anti that, then you seem like the enemy to them and they seem like the enemy to you. So this idea of, of having, a, having some sort of inside track on what the truth really is, um, is just something that the mind creates. It's not something that's actually true because the actual truth it doesn't exist in things that are made of arising and passing away and mental factors. It's just dependently arisen. There's no concrete, standalone, autonomous truth that can be found amongst this constantly changing kaleidoscope of factors and arisings and passings <coughs> away. So anything that's grounded in these mental factors and this, this uh, dependence on things that arise and pass away um, is always going to be kind of kind of mushy, you could say, kind of kind of dodgy, kind of provisional, in a word, uncertain. Right? And this is the meaning. This is a, a, a very relevant and important meaning of anicca. And the way to see it, it can start just with the most concrete, direct, self-evident manifestation of anicca which is what we've been paying attention to, which is the rising and passing away of the breath, the rising and passing away of individual footsteps, of sounds, of emotions, of pain. Right? It's, you don't have to go looking for your views and opinions in the context of those things. But as, you're, as you train your mind to notice that rising and passing away happens, and that eventually it becomes self-evident that it only things only arise and pass away when the conditions are right for them to do so. So the arising of the breath, the experience of the breath coming in, only happens when the breath has already gone out and the body needs a little oxygen and the muscles start to, to shift <coughs> and the air starts to come in. And you're paying attention. You're looking in that direction. If you're not looking in that direction, the breath comes and goes and you don't know. We spend most of our lives breathing and having no idea that we're doing so. so. So the experience of something is only actually feasible and only actually occurs when the attention is directed towards that experience. So we can only see the jewel and the, and the trash heap if we happen to be looking at the thing and our perception engages and notices the edges of it. So if we're not looking in a particular direction, phenomena arise and pass away without us even noticing it. Uh, so these are these are manifestations or modalities, you could say, of this term anicca. It's much it's much bigger than just the temporal arising and passing away, and yet it's it's uh, the temporal arising and passing away, the, the arising and passing away of things in time, is like the entryway, it's the doorway to seeing how conditionality works, and that's really what we're trying to get a sense of. When you start to see that all conditioned things arise and pass away, then you also see that trying to make them solid and real and static requires the mind to sort of grasp at them and try to kind of freeze them in time. And that's what a view is. A view is a frozen stance. Uh, so um, a view about oneself, like uh, you know, other people, 
don't like me or other people are afraid of me or other people don't notice me or you know it's always going to be in relationship to something else um you know i'm a, I'm a i have good handwriting you know whatever it is it's going to be um, a view that seems like it's continuously true but continuous truth is not available right in direct experience the only thing that's actually true is what's happening right now so the truth of the past and the truth of the future depends on memory and imagination, which are mental factors. And, and they're made of, the, those memories and imaginations are all grounded in experiences that aren't happening necessarily right now. So having an opinion about yourself, like uh, I'm, uh, I'm unlovable or something like this, can have like a strong emotional um, grip on our hearts. Um, and it can seem true because every time we look, there it is, this like quality that we find unlovable about ourselves. But again, it's just like the jewel in the trash pile. It, it doesn't exist at all until you put your attention on it. So we actually literally bring things into reality. We, we create the, the existence of things, like the, the apparent truth of an opinion about ourselves by aiming our attention at some aspect of, of memory or experience with uh, the intention to see this, we go looking for validation of the thing that we already believe. And that's a huge part of what political opinions and views are all about. So if uh, there's a politician that we dislike and there's other people that like that politician, whatever the politician says, the side that likes him will spin it in a good way, and the side that doesn't like him will spin it in a bad way. And we'll find ways to interpret it, or to, we'll tend to interpret it, uh, or elevate it, or uh, uh, ignore it, based on the pre-existing view that the politician is a good person or not a good person. Oh, and same thing goes with, with all of our views about um, yeah, climate change and any other controversial issue, but even just ordinary things like, um, you know, uh, uh, I live in a good neighborhood, right? So, so when we, we look, we have a, a view, a very neutral kind of view or um, um, natural things are better than unnatural things, right? Anything that we have a view about, when we look at, when we have experiences with those things, part of our mind likes, you could say, we, we like to believe that things are reliable. We don't actually like a Nietzsche very much. It's not that fun, right? The mind, there's an old saying, the mind delights in form, and it doesn't like the formless. It likes things to have hard edges to them. It likes clarity, and it likes true, it likes to believe that, that you know, things can be understood. It likes to grab things and hold on to them. And so to, to relax back into sort of like everything's kind of uncertain, kind of unsure, it seems it's a little intimidating for the mind. Uh, and this probably has roots in our, uh, in, in biology, I would suppose, right? Evolutionarily speaking, we have a mind that's designed to try to seek out truth, to try to understand the environment, uh, uh, to try to come to sturdy conclusions. And once we've got a, pr a pretty good conclusion, like, um, uh, you know, you can imagine a, a, a tribe of hunter-gatherers who've got a conclusion that that other tribe over there is trying to encroach on our territory and we need to protect ourselves from them. 
um, you don't have to re-examine that every single day, right? Every time you see one of those guys, you just throw spears at them and everything's fine. Or um, uh, we can't stay in this territory during the winter because there's not enough food. You don't have to run that test every year. Like one famine is enough to teach you that. And so you, you go south in the winter and you, you find a new hunting ground. So, so we, we have to learn from our environment in order to survive, right? That's what our minds are designed to do. So there's this uh, kind of old saying, like your, your mind or nature doesn't care whether you're happy or not. It only cares that you survive and uh, ideally have children. Right? And nature just wants to propagate itself and it doesn't care whether you're happy. So we have to, uh, uh, what the Buddha is giving us is these tools that allow us to sort of um, reverse engineer how it is that things come to be, how things come to seem the way that they seem to us. And when we start to see how it is that the mind fabricates our reality, then the, the fabricated nature of all things becomes more and more apparent to us as we pay attention. And then we also realize that everybody else is fabricating their reality too. And that a fabricated reality can never really be the same thing as reality. It's a simulation. It's a, it's a re-representation internally of an approximation of something which is grounded perhaps in the outside world, but fundamentally is purely an internal experience. So the way, the, the reason the Buddha is pointing this out to us, making us pay so much attention to anicca, is because of suffering. So everything that causes us to suffer in one way or another, involves the mind grasping at a view or an opinion or a belief that's made of this, that's fabricated in this way. So the mind grasps at things which are fabricated. It grasps at things which really aren't real. And it tries to make them real because it likes solidity. It likes dependability. It likes to think that it's in contact with the truth. And when, those, when things inevitably change, we suffer because they don't live up to our expectations. Or that we have to put up with things that we think we shouldn't have to. Right? So all of our suffering is grounded in, a, you could say, uh, an inadequate appreciation of the implications of anicca. When we see anicca deeply and over and over again, slowly, slowly, it starts to seep into our hearts we start to see the, the implications of it. We start to see that our views and our opinions and our beliefs, all the things that seem so real and important to us, uh, are just made up. They're just conditioned, conditionally arisen. They don't really belong to us even. They're just there with us. It's something that we experience along with our bodies. And then we don't have to take it so seriously. And that's really what it comes down to. It, it, the, the mind that's grasping is imbuing phenomena with a, a, a weight, a, a gravitas, a significance, a meaning, uh, 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 an importance, which isn't justified because it's not real. Right? Things that are made up, the things that are conditionally arisen are always arising and passing away. 
but the mind likes to think that it's static and real and solid and persists in time. So even something like the breath, when we talk about the breath, even the phrase the breath, you know, it's a noun, it sounds static, like the breath is always there. But the experience of the breath is like this set of vibrations and sensations, and then that goes away. And then another set of vibrations and sensations, and they go away too. It's not, there's no such thing as the breath, really. Right? The mind makes this, again, concretizes phenomenon into uh, a belief about in, in something existing. So we believe the breath exists, but all we really experience is this phenomenon that we're labeling as the breath. And we believe our opinions, we believe our, our views, we believe uh, uh, a lot of things. But the phenomenological experience of it is a different of a different nature. It doesn't require belief to, to experience the breath. You just experience it. It's just it's just phenomena that's happening. If the mind's not grasping at conditioned phenomena, then in, it's necessarily uh, in a state of open-endedness. When it grasps at something and trying to reify something, a belief, an ideal, uh, uh, belief in the self, um, there's going to be things that don't exactly line up, like like a political opponent, right? Um, if you think of yourself as a successful person, then anything that challenges that view is going to be painful, and you're going to have to defend against it, you're going to have to avoid seeing it. If you think that life goes on like this pretty much forever, then you're not going to want to look and notice things like aging and illness. Those things will, will be offensive to you. They'll be problematic. Um, so, so our, uh, if, we, if you believe that the people that you have relationships with are somehow static and are always going to be there and that you can count on them, or that anything that you believe in, uh, your country, uh, the nature of the human mind, uh, um, uh, history, uh, religious dogma, whatever it is, um, it's just something that you learned about over time, and then you reify into in your mind into a into a set of categories of beliefs that the mind grasps at and tries to reify and keep keep uh, keep up, keep upholding. And that effort to uphold things uh, is challenged by anything at all that comes along to challenge it. Setting all that down and just knowing that these things are there, part of the conditioning, part of the mind, and not taking them so seriously. Um, that's what the freedom the Buddha is pointing to. The mind, when it stops grasping at anything, is granted a kind of freedom that it doesn't have when it's gripping things. The freedom is simply uh, this relaxed open-endedness. We get little tastes of it when we're when we're meditating and we're we're kind of just being with the present moment experience. And there's no agenda. There's nowhere we're trying to go or nothing we're trying to accomplish. We're just, there's just this arising and passing away and we're okay with it. That contentedness, that, that's an open-ended freedom then that's possible. Uh, it's possible to have that permeate our lives. But the only way that can happen is for uh, a kind of an internal change of opinion. 
instead of believing that things are real and solid and concrete and therefore graspable, we have to come to the conclusion that things really aren't like that. They're all dependent. They're dependently arisen. They're, they're, they're conditioned by mental factors. Um, and that which appears to be concrete is really kind of a mirage. The, the Buddha compared consciousness itself to a, to a magician's trick. So our minds are kind of playing this trick. It looks real, but it's not really. And for us to, to have that deeply seep into our hearts um, can only happen by a, a fair bit of experience. Uh, you might see a, a number, a large number of experiences seeing the opposite is true. Seeing the anicca <coughs> of things. Seeing the uncertainty of things, the conditioned nature of things. When we see this, then we start to change our perception from things are static, they're real, they're reliable, they're they're true, to everything's kind of being fabricated by the mind, and that's that's the nature of of all existence. And therefore, we don't have to take it so seriously. Then that which seemed permanent starts to show itself to you as being impermanent, or that which seemed like Nietzsche starts to show itself to you as Anicca. And that which seemed like a source of happiness and satisfaction, because you could grab onto it and you could count on it, starts to seem like a source of possible danger if you were to do that. So that which seemed like Sukha, our goodness and happiness, starts to seem like not worthy of being grasped because of its ephemeral, fabricated nature. And so you just don't grasp it. The, the Buddha called this tendency to see that which is impermanent as permanent, as an inversion or a, a, a perversion of perception. So our perception is there to tell us what's going on in the world. If we perceive that which is inherently impermanent and inherently uncertain as being certain and static and real, then we'll make mistakes in judgment. But when we see it correctly, then our judgment will be more in line with reality, and we won't make mistakes. I won't make fewer mistakes. So, the, so correcting that inversion of perception can only come about when we like retrain our hearts. You have to, and we have the only way to do that is to see it over and over and over again. So, one strong hit of the truth of anicca uh, can get you, you know, can take you a long way in practice. But you really, the, the the truth is, you have to see it over and over and over again in every possible mundane corner of your experience. So you have to see it in your body, you have to see it uh, in your digestion, you have to see it in the lines on your face, you have to see it in the way that your psyche reacts to other people, you have to see it in the footsteps of rising and passing away, you have to see it over and over and over again, you have to see it waking up and falling asleep, you have to see it in the mind wandering. Anicca, Anicca, Anicca. And the, the way to do that is simply to kind of direct your attention towards that, that aspect of phenomena. It's not, it's not in difficult to, to see. It's difficult to, to continue perceiving it. Right? Like you can perceive it at any moment if you choose to. I'll say a word and you'll see it arise and pass away. Word. Just like that. It arose and passed away. If you attended to the fact that it arose and passed away, then that's pointing your, your attention in the direction of anicca. If you, if you got entangled in the content of what it is that I said, 
know, what does word mean? And what's the etymology of that? Now, why do we use the word word to refer to words? Is word really a word, or is it actually just a guttural sound that means utterance? You know, like you, the mind can go off on, on all these different tangents, and the Buddha called that papancha. And uh, one of the synonyms for enlightenment is the ending of papancha, of endless elaboration, because that's being lost in the fantasy world. The real world is just this world of arising and passing away, a phenomenon that's uncertain. And the mind that knows this is in truth knowing and seeing things as they really are, rather than as we imagine them to be. So this is the, the, the direction, if you will, the, the focus of our practice, Umram retreat. We calm the mind down by meditating. When the mind's calm, we start to notice things are rising and passing away. If we get, if we find that's okay, there I see it. It's rising and passing away. I'm done, and we consider the job finished. Well, we're we're mistaken. There's more to do. Uh, so we notice that the rising and passing away, and then we we have to kind of stick with it long enough for our minds to start to generalize it uh, in a very organic way. We start to see everything is like this. And so that's the, uh, that's the phase that we are, we're, we're encouraging our minds to go towards, is by just staying continuously present in the present moment and noticing what's happening and keeping an eye on how the mind, uh, how the mind is attending to things uh, and not letting it fall into its ordinary habits of thinking about stuff and getting lost in thought and getting lost in the content. Because the content isn't where we're going to learn anything new. We're not going to change our hearts by paying attention to the content of our experience. So if a, a bunch of memories come up, if we get entangled with the memories, we'll just be entangled with memories. And we'll just suffer. But if we notice it, oh, look, memory got triggered. So someone said something or did something, a memory got triggered. There's some, some emotional charge with that memory. It's rising. There it is. There it is. And now it's starting to fade away. The mind's getting bored with it. Now it's gone. And now something else is arising. So we just stay right in the present moment, attending to the, at the phenomenological level rather than the content level of our experience. And it slowly re-educates our hearts. And this re-education is, is uh, what it's all about, really. We re-educate ourselves in terms of the three trainings. Training in sila, the training in samadhi, and the training in panya. We focus mostly on the, the samadhi-panya aspects while we're on retreat, and we kind of coast on the sila aspect. But in truth, training your mind to see the truth is a kind of higher virtue, right? Because the mind that sees the truth doesn't grasp at the self as much. And all the things that we do that's against sila, saying something unkind, losing our temper, etc., in one way or another, they're connected to this grasping itself. So as we, as we teach ourselves not to grasp by seeing how things are really conditioned, how they're really not dependable, they're not as true and solid as we thought, 
we're, we're digging away at the actual root of all unskillful behaviors, all unskillful mind states, all unhappiness for ourselves and for all the people that we affect. And so this is why the Buddha um, pointed out that seeing a Nietzsche is a very, very meritorious way to conduct yourself. He said it's better to live just a single moment seeing a Nietzsche than to live a hundred years not seeing it. Because a hundred years lived not seeing a Nietzsche is a hundred years lived in delusion, making mistakes. But a single moment seeing a Nietzsche is making this incredibly good kama, the kama that leads to the end of suffering. So it inclines the mind in the right direction. So this is the, a much, much higher form of merit in the Buddha's reckoning of merit. Because merit is really just those courses of conduct that lead towards happiness for oneself and for others. So directing your mind towards a Nietzsche, seeing a Nietzsche, is really a, a, a advanced training in sila, right? because it, it, it lays the groundwork for uh, a much freer, easier going, open-ended uh, way of conducting oneself in the world and no longer being so subject to making mistakes because you're in contact with the truth in your heart, not intellectually, but experientially. You know in your gut that there's no reason to react from an emotional, uh, selfish place to the pains and temptations of the world because there's nothing worth grasping there. And so the ungrasping mind doesn't suffer and it doesn't make others suffer. So there's a few thoughts on the nature of uh, impermanence and anicca. Andamayam dhammakataya sadhukaram dhamdhamase sadhu